0: Looking at the Scriptures with us this morning, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Um, we have been working our way through Luke over the last uh, several months, um, and we'll continue until we, we finish this book. Um, if you were wondering why, more, why not more singing, there will be more singing um, after the sermon. We, we do like to save the bulk of, of our, our worship through song for after the sermon, so that we can worship in response to how the Lord has, has led and guided and revealed Himself to us this morning, which most typically happens through His Word. Um, Alright, so Luke, um, we have been working our way um, through this, and, and last week we, we started a transition where Jesus has kind of set His face towards Jerusalem. And now through the end of chapter 9 into chapter 19 is really this transition. Um, it's the most unique original um, material in Luke. Is going to be in this section. It's Jesus headed with resolve, resolution to the cross, training the disciples in mean, what it's going to look like for Him to be a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, um, and, and training them as to what it will mean for them to, to continue the ministry after Jesus' death, His resurrection, and His ascension. Right for it to continue on, and and so last week at the end of chapter nine we saw that discipleship is costly, right? That it's not easy, it's not comfortable, and um, it doesn't line up with what the world would call us to. Um, and and the question is going to be, is is whose who where are we going to bow our knee? Are we going to bow it to the world for their approval and their affirmation? Or are we going to bow it to Jesus? Um, and and that it's not going to be easy. So he is not sugarcoating it. He's calling us um to trust and to follow. Him, And so we're going to pick up this morning, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house, you enter, whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Kill the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. We're going to stop there. We'll continue here in a moment. You remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus, for the first time, sends out uh, the 12 disciples, right? that he, he commissions them, sends them out um, to preach and to teach and to cast out demons, and they go out. Um, and, and when they come back, they report all the success that they've had. And then the rest of chapter 9 is really the disciples, after that victory, um, failing, right? There, there's times where they're unable to cast out demons. There's times where they don't grasp what Jesus is teaching. There's times where they don't obey what Jesus is teaching. Here in chapter 10, Jesus is now, from the crowds that have been following him, have pulled 72 others to go out, two by two, to minister, to preach the gospel. right? The good news that, that the kingdom of God is near. right? That it's breaking forth and, and, and things are being reversed. The curse is being changed because Jesus is here right and and so he's sending them out from the crowds from those who have been following to do this, most likely he sends them out two by two uh, because in deuteronomy nineteen uh, we're reminded that it's before you have to have two witnesses right so they're able to both testify back on behalf of Jesus to those who they're telling that they've both seen this, they're both speaking with with truth and validity, and they're also then able to bring back what the lord uh, what has happened? The success that has come from this, um, from that. So that's Deuteronomy 19:15. But he warns them. He tells them, "Listen, it's going to be costly. Like the work is going to be difficult. Um, I'm sending you out as lambs in, in the midst of wolves." Again, he's not lying to them. He's not trying to make it sound better than it is. He's like, "It's going to. It's going to be costly. It's going to be difficult." And he tells them, "I want you to go out carrying no money bag in verse four, no knapsack." Um, no sandals is really no additional sandals. And and what he's telling them is, I want you to be dependent on me. Like you're not going in excess. You're not going because you're able to figure this out, that you're able to provide. You're going dependent upon what I'm going to do and what I'm going to provide for you. It's the reason he will have them stay in one home. right? Traveling um, pr- uh, preachers at this time, um, traveling uh, spiritual Folks of of any bent would often bounce from home to home to home, taking advantage of people's hospitality, looking for the best place to stay, who has the nicest place, the nicest food, right? He says, No, you go and you stay and you receive their hospitality. You don't dishonor them by moving on to a better opportunity. You minister to them and you stay, and then you can minister to the community from that home base. So he gives them instructions on what they should take and how they should re- relate and act, making sure they're relying on Him. And He gives them instructions on, listen, if they don't receive you, if they don't receive you, and you shake your, the dust, we saw this as well in, in chapter 9, that what this was was when, when Jews would go into um, pagan or Gentile non-Jewish areas, they would often, as they were leaving it before they would step foot back in a place they would consider home, they would shake the dust off their feet. They're leaving the things that would have um, made them unclean or impure behind. They're recognizing that they're different and they're they're separate, and so it's a way to, to do that. Um and so he says, When I tell you to shake the dust off, you're telling them you have not received the kingdom of God. And the judgment right will come because of that if you don't repent and respond. Um Feet um, in America, the imagery here is, is sometimes odd for us. We, I mean, although we don't really necessarily want to touch other people's feet or like them that much, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a shameful thing, a dishonoring thing. This is still a Middle Eastern culture um, that where the bottom of your foot is pointed matters. Um, if your foot is pointed towards someone, it's 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 the equivalent um, of, of flipping them off. Um, with probably talking about their mom while you do it. Right. I mean it's 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 a very, very shame driven thing. Um there was a woman while we were in the Middle East who a man had treated her very, very poorly. She was an older woman and she took her sandal off and like showed it to him. Right? Like she was trying to put shame on him, but he he killed her over it. I mean it was that it's that level of shame. Some of you may have remembered years ago uh, President Bush in a news conference, and someone throws a shoe at him, right? And as you're watching that, you're like, that's a strange reaction. But in the Middle Eastern context, they were, they were throwing shame and dishonor. It was a way to offend greatly. And so this idea of shaking the dust off from your feet is a way of saying, like, it, it's shameful. Like, you have not responded to the kingdom of God coming near, right? It is, it is to draw attention and hopefully repentance back. We'll come back to each of these sections, but we're going to continue for a moment. Let's pick up in verse 13. He ended verse 12 with saying, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And he continues in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazam! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works, if, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sodom, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, he's talking to the 72, hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So he's telling them, he mentions here some some places. right? He mentions Chorazin and, and Capernaum and Bethsaida, these are these are Jewish places, Jewish cities. And then he mentions two um, places to the north, Tyre and Sidon, who are um, historically in Scripture known as just being pagan places. You can read about this in Isaiah 23, in um, Jeremiah 25 and 47, in Joel 3, in Amos 1. And so these two cities, along with Sodom, Have almost become like proverbial for like super wicked, evil, right? Like they're just the bad guys. And so the contrast that Jesus is saying is he's sending them out to Jewish communities. He's saying, listen, if you reject the kingdom of God coming near, you're rejecting God. You're not just rejecting me, you're not just rejecting my disciples, you're rejecting the one who sent me, God the Father, who you claim to know and to love and to trust. And to know his word. And he said, Those pagan places that historically you've thought so little of, he said, if they had seen what you have seen, they would have repented. They would be humble. They would be receiving right, um, sackcloth and they would be repenting and saying, No, 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 we, we want God. We will turn to him. And he said, You're supposed to be our people, my people and you're rejecting church maybe we can think of it this way this morning if you put yourself in in a group right especially politically right whether you're on the whichever side of the aisle you're on right if you stand in that group and and someone was to say to you hey if if the other side if they saw what Jesus did they would repent but you didn't Right, The Democrats would have repented, but Republicans, you didn't. Or vice versa. Right? It would be like saying, hey, the communists, the socialists, they would have repented, and America, you didn't. Hey, you in, in, in um, the Bible Belt, the Muslims would have repented, but you didn't. He is showing this stark contrast, saying, you claim to be near the things of God, and yet those that you consider so far gone... So pagan, so different, they would have responded, and you haven't. He is heaping right shame and, and potential for judgment upon them here. One one final section, verse seventeen. So the seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. They have here, these 72, their own mountaintop experience. Chapter 9, we saw the transfiguration. They come back going, God, you sent us out. Like Jesus, you sent us out, and you told us it was going to be hard, and you told us not to take enough money, and you told us, look what happened. And they're like with joy, they are talking about the ministry that happened, the power that they saw. They are enthusiastic, right, as to what has taken place. There weren't going to be enough people. We didn't have enough. We were lambs in the in 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 view of wolves. Like and yet. God, look what's happened. They are rejoicing and celebrating. We see a beautiful claim of deity by Jesus here as He talks about Himself and and the Father, right? That only we, right, know each other. Only we can reveal um, our true self, our true character to, to people. Like He is making this claim of not just sense, like I am God, right? And that this is long Awaited, right? That this is what people have wanted for generations. Listen to verse 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying, The kingdom is breaking forth. Like the long awaited time is happening, and you're seeing it not just in me, but in my disciples who are going forth. So church, this morning, we have to, to, as we look at this passage, we have to keep in mind that there is a danger in the church in in losing sight of mission. Right? Like there's a danger in drifting. So um, as Redeemer started a little over 11 years ago, um, there was a sense of urgency because there were no people. Right? There was a sense of urgency because um, I've quit my job. I believe the Lord is calling us to this. And we gotta, we got to see something happen, see something start. And so we're, we're sent out whether we felt adequate to it or not, like the Lord has sent us to do this. And so we're saying, okay, God, will you please? Like, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough things, much like the 72. And then as you step out into ministry, right, the Lord meets us and begins to do things and begins to stir, right? If we're not careful, though, once there becomes a, a certain amount of momentum moving forward, we can lose our missional edge. Because we're like, hey, whether I talk to anyone this week or not, there'll be people all there on Sunday. right? Like You can begin to, to blunt that and drift into just sustaining, just being comfortable, just keeping what you have. And yet that's not what we're called to here. And so in light of the danger of, of missional drift, I want us to look at, at six things real quick and how this passage can encourage us, challenge us here. The first is this. If we look at verses um, 1 and 2, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said, The harvest is plentiful. Do you notice he's, he's not sending the 12 here? He's sending the 72. We don't know one name of the 72. Not one. We know the 12. We don't know the 72. It is a reminder to us this morning that the call to be on mission is not for the professionals. It's not just for the well-known. It is for all of us. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that, that God gives to the church some leader like leadership. And the job of that leadership is not to do all the work, but is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so I I do the work myself individually, but part of mine and the elders' job here is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. None of us escape the call of the Lord that we are, as we are going, right? Matthew 28, as we're going in the world, right, that we are to make disciples, that we are to be on mission. Seeing folks come to faith and speaking hope and truth and love and life. None of us... Right, in a place where we get to come in and sit and just watch what takes place, we are sins, whether our name is ever known or not, we are sins as we're going, there's no pass and I love the humility of this here, right the, These unknown people they're seen by Jesus, and so whether you serve in a place where you never get any recognition in this world, right because of the role that you play or whether it's because you are in a town right, where no one really cares about that town, right? that Jesus sees you and sees your obedience and sees your faithfulness as you pour yourself out on mission for, for the Lord as a wife and as a mom, as a grandmother, as a neighbor, as a dad, as a husband, right? As we do that um, in, in small ways and in big ways. That Jesus sees your faithfulness, your dependency, and your trust on Him, whether anyone else ever applauds it, He sees it and He will reward it. Like, would we be encouraged by that this morning? In Hebrews eleven, in the Hall of Faith, right? This passage where you can go through all the big heroes of the Old Testament and how they did great things for the Lord but I love that the author of Hebrews continues, and he just begins to list out, and he says, and some people put foreign armies to flight, like they step out and foreign armies just run, and others are overrun. Others live in caves. Others are sawn in half. Others are in prison. And he says, these are those of whom the world was not worthy. Right? Like, we don't know their names. We don't know them like Moses, right? Samson. Like, we don't know them like David, But the Lord sees and knows and rewards faithfulness. And so as the Lord has sent out the 12, He sends out the 72. Same task, same mission. That we do it in faithfulness and obedience to the glory of God. The second thing that will help us kind of check if we are drifting in regards to mission, one is that we've been called. Second is that we are to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. We're supposed to be dependent upon Jesus. Look at verse 2. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, so he says, so what do we do? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So even as he sends 72, he's like, the job is too big for you. You need to pray already before you go that the Lord will provide more people because the harvest is plentiful and ready. And he says, so go your way. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You're carrying no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He's saying you don't have enough people, you don't have enough things, but you pray and you ask God to meet you and to move. We know that the, the way they're doing ministry here is He is describing it. He's not telling us this is how we do it. There's, we don't walk around right, in twos because of this passage. right? Because even in Luke, when Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper at His last Passover, He changes how He sends them out. That this was how he sent them out in this moment. This isn't some rule to ministry here that we go out two by two barefoot with no no bag. Um so not enough money, pray. Not enough people, pray. And the reminder that we can't save, like we can't rescue. We need the Spirit of God to work and move. One of the my my favorite things about this passage and the dependency that he calls us to is he tells them, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's not just that lambs um, are, are not great at fighting back, it's that like, they are literally defenseless. Like they, what are they going to do to a wolf? They're not going to outrun it, they're not going to outbite it, right? Like There's nothing they're going to do. And he's reminding us, church, this world is not our home. And I'm sending you out and you are going to have to rely on Me and depend on Me. Our our instincts and our nature says, well, let's become really well-armed lambs. But it's not what He asks us to do. He asks us to trust Him and to go out knowing that it is dangerous and it's uncomfortable and that it's going to feel unnatural, and yet I want you to trust Me and be dependent upon Me. What are these folks' qualifications? So they have been with Jesus. That's it. They've been with Jesus. We don't see him going through and saying, right, like selecting the 72 based on any specific qualifications other than they've been with Him. They trust Him and they're depending on Him. Church, as we are sent out, all of us, would we be a people who have been with Jesus? That is our qualification. The third thing to help us keep from drifting out of mission is that this is relationship-driven. Look at verses 5 through 9. He says, Whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. But remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Right? Don't go from house to house. He's telling them, it's going to happen around the table. What's going to happen is going to be around the table as you are sharing the stories of what you've seen me do. What you're calling them to trust in and believe. You're going to do it around the table, and then they're going to bring in their neighbors and their friends and their family to say, tell them the same story. It's happening around the table. This beautiful um, situation where he's he's like, you're going to heal people, your ministry is going to meet real needs, but you are preaching the kingdom is near. You're meeting needs both physically as well as spiritually. It's important for us, church, to realize it's not one or the other. It is both. That when we see darkness, when we see needs, we meet them. And then we share the gospel that Jesus has come for us, that He has made a way for us to be right with God the Father. Through His life on our behalf, through His death on our behalf, and through His resurrection, having beaten sin and Satan and death. I love that He tells them, your peace is going to be a tangible thing. Look at verse 5. When you say peace to this house, and if they receive it, Listen to what it says. Your peace will rest on them. Like, they're going to get peace simply because you're there. And if they reject you, your peace leaves with you. Church, how often have you experienced that yourself, that you've walked into a home and it was peaceful? Right? And it wasn't because of the temperament of the folks there. It was because there was a deep and abiding love and trust that Jesus is enough. And it has just permeated everything. And so folks... Are drawn to that home. They want to be there. They want to be around those people, right? Because there's a peace that is tangible and felt and tasted, and it's good. Like that's what He is calling us to do here, because we're a people who are at peace with God, that we have a peace to offer. It's attractive, it's needed. We can take it for granted. And if you only spend your time around believers, you can certainly take it for granted because everyone around you may feel pretty peaceful. But if you begin to put yourself in the world around those who lack it, you begin to not take it for granted. You are anchored by it. You are dependent on it. And you realize not everyone just has it. There's a reason that they want to be around you. Listen, and so it means that we push back darkness around our dinner table speaking truth, calling people to let idols go, the things that they're depending on and trusting in or hoping in or looking for satisfaction in. And when we know those things won't provide it, that we're willing to speak truth, right? So that their grip on those things would begin to be loosened so that tangible peace would begin to fill them because peace is possible with God. Not just that we would have inner peace, but that we can have peace with God. We are no longer warring against Him. We can belong as sons and daughters. And that can be imaged at your dinner table. That can be imaged on your front porch. That can be imaged um, in in your family, on behalf of others, that in the way that people are welcomed and belong, you can say the Lord does the same for us. That He draws us in and puts us at peace and makes us Put, allows us to be home. The fourth one is this: um, is that there's response. Look at verse seventeen. They are so stoked, <laughs> excited of the success they've had. Lord, even the demons are subject to you. It's subject to us in your name. They've had success in the face of great difficulty. They've had success. And yet, look at what Jesus says to them in verse 20. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Yes, you've had success, but that's not what we're rejoicing in. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That you belong to me. That you belong to the Father. Like, this is what we rejoice in. This is what we rejoice in. That they went out in a deficit, and they've had success. Listen, I, I want to briefly just note, last week James and John, when, when they were rejected, when Jesus was rejected, what did they say? Hey God, let us call down fire and destroy them. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, that's not how we're doing this. Church, judgment's not in our hands. Like history, the church has sometimes wanted to pick judgment up and by the sword ask people to believe. That is not what we're called to do. We are called to be lambs in the midst of wolves. We are called to preach a message and we are to leave judgment in the hands of God. Right that is not our call to wipe out and to destroy here. It is to point back to Jesus. And so he even tells them, look in verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, scorpions and overpower of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. This here is not a promise that you will not be physically hurt in pursuing Jesus or sharing the gospel. We know that's not true because almost all the disciples are martyred. Jesus is killed, right? Countless others through the last 2,000 years. What is this a promise of? That they don't have power over us. Listen to Matthew ten Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So what's he telling them? He's like, you can go out in the midst of danger and harm as a lamb in the midst of wolves because I, I, you're secure in me. Like, there's nothing they can do to you. And listen, they can take your life, but there's nothing they can do to remove you from my hand. You are secure in me. This is Romans 8, right? That nothing will separate us from the love of God. This is John, that we are secure in in, in his strong hands, right, that we belong to Him. And He says, yes, they may take your life, but this place wasn't your home to begin with. It's with me. And so we are on our way somewhere. We're on mission somewhere. Don't drift from that and thinking you've got to make the most easy, comfortable life that you can because we're headed to where we belong. And so you can face danger because you're secure in me and ultimately they can't do anything to you. The fifth thing, I know we're moving quick here, but um, is this, is that they rejoice that they belong. We just saw, we see that in verse 20, that Jesus tells them there is risk in success. When you crush it in ministry, when people around you are believing or being healed or these things are taking place, He's like, you can begin to believe that ministry is everything and you can miss Jesus. And so He tells them, yes, you've been successful. That's not what we rejoice in. You rejoice that you know me. You rejoice that you have me. And there's a danger, not just in success, there's a, there's a risk in being afraid of the world, of being unwilling to be a lamb going out in front of the wolves. And so then you shriek back and you look to insulate yourself and to become too comfortable and too easy. So he says, you've got to watch out for these two dangers of success that will make you miss Jesus or fear that will make you miss Jesus. Rely on me. Trust me. Depend upon me, Jesus says. He is everything, not ministry. And he reminds them that the bigger deal than them being able to cast out a demon was that darkness was pushed out of them. He's like, I'm going to celebrate darkness leaving you more than the fact that you could push a demon out because you needed it. What a humbling reminder to us that darkness had to be pushed out of us first to know Jesus to become a new creation. And the final one is this, that there's victory. What will help us keep from drifting is that there's victory. Verse 18, And He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan is being put to open shame. Colossians 2 tells us that at the cross where it looks like Jesus is defeated, where the church loses, that it was actually the, the, the enemies of God being put to open shame. Here he tells them, as the kingdom is breaking forth, as the reversal of the curse is happening, Jesus says, I see Satan, he's falling. We are making grounds in enemy territory, and the kingdom of God wins. So he tells them, listen, we don't worry about what the enemy claims to be able to do to you, because you're secure in me. Your soul is safe in me, and nothing will separate you. We can rest In that. The enemy has been put to shame and his final defeat is coming, but Jesus is the victor. And so he has called us, church, to go from here to him, making much in every relationship, role, situation, circumstance of life, whether healthy or sick, whether rich or poor, whether in relationship or not, whether right whether feeling whole and bold or not whether success in ministry and some acclaim or whether you are humble and unknown right like that in all situations that we are pointing people to Jesus trusting that his spirit is pushing out darkness that we will see marriages healed we'll see addictions broken right we'll see folks who had no generations of believers behind them begin to set a new trajectory of belief in their family, where kids are raised up, pointed to Jesus, where we'll see hope and joy and peace, where circumstances no longer dictate, but that Jesus does. And He has sent each of us out into the mission field to do that. Our workplace, our families, our neighborhoods, our hobbies, the world. He has called us to this. And so would we let this passage Encourage and remind us that we are not to drift, that we're not to take the, the call lightly, but we are to move towards our King and our rescue and our Savior who has done it all, who's equipped us, who's called us, who's saved us, who sends us. Let's pray. Jesus, we we come this morning knowing it is really easy um, to be distracted by, by good things that aren't God things. It's really easy to, to be distracted by just doing the rhythms of life and missing that You have called us to be on mission. Lord, would we trust You this morning? Lord, would, would You begin to reveal to us where are areas where we're not depending on You? Where are areas where we're not seeing victory and trusting the work that you have done. Where are areas, God, where we are not relationally driven? um, God, would we confess our lack and our sin, knowing that we will find mercy and grace and forgiveness in that? God, for those this morning who would say, I've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Lord, would they believe even this morning as you call and woo them? Father, would we not believe that our standing in You is based on how well we do on mission, but that we walk in faithful obedience because You have first pushed the darkness out of us. You have raised the dead to life in us. And so, Lord, we want to point others to You, seeing hope and joy in the curse reversed. Lord, would we worship this morning in response to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.